The views and opinions expressed in the following paid program are those of the host, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this station, its management, or owners. Now it's time to talk about everything dogs, cats, and other domestic animals. This is Animal Talk. Here's Dr. Dan Lang on the Big 550 KTRS. Welcome back to Animal Talk on the Big 550 KTRS. I'm Connor McCarthy with Dr. Dan Lang here, as always, on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. 70 degrees today, I think it's going to get, Dr. Lang. So. Yeah, it's uh, a lot warmer than it was yesterday. Uh, out of nowhere, it was very cold, but I think we're we're pretty much past the cold weather here uh, today. Uh, in studio with us, a couple of people actually playing a little musical chairs, shifting stuff around, shifting the mics around. We have Michelle McIntosh with us here as uh, as well. Uh, Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) And I was trying to think of a way to introduce you and your relation to Dr. Lang. So why don't you go ahead? So, yeah, full disclosure, I'm a former client of Dr. Lang's. I'm also his stepdaughter, so okay. we'll have some... And she always causes me Dr. Lang. Yeah, yeah. right. Right, I'm at home, sure, I'm yeah. as well. That would be super uh, weird. Uh, so I'm sure you've got a lot of experience with Dr. Lang here uh, yeah. in, in, in both fields. I guess you were a client as well. Uh, was that was that weird at all, knowing your vet uh, personally like that, or no? Um. Not really. I mean, I, it's actually, I think it made it a little bit more comfortable because I could ask, you know, what mm-hmm. if maybe stupid questions, yeah, you know, via yeah. text or. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, no, it never, yeah, never really bothered well, me. Well, I'm sure so. it's good to have him on call, you know, 24 7, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Whenever you needed something, right, Dr. Lang? Well, especially in Switzerland, you know, they're eight or nine hours apart, so it's not sure. always the best timing. But... Right. And that's what, kind of why she's here today. Uh, normally, you don't live here. Now, you live in Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. I actually live uh, near Montreux in French speaking Switzerland. Okay. Uh, is it weird back speaking English, or do they speak? Will they speak English for you there? Um, the Swiss speak about three or four languages, so I do speak a lot of English okay. there, which is mm-hmm. probably why my French is still pretty terrible. Okay. But um, yeah. yeah, no, yeah. It, it's nice to be speaking American English, though. You don't find yourself breaking out into French here at the store, uh, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. slipping into a French word here or there. Uh, no, not not, no, too, not not too often. Not too often. <laughs> well, you know, we're here on Animal Talk. You're here with us on Animal Talk, uh, talking about pets, animals, things of that nature. That's why Dr. Lang is here, of course. Uh, he's the vet. He's the expert. Uh, so, you came, you know, Dr. Wang, why don't you explain what you wanted to talk about here? Well, Michelle and her significant other, Sean, lived in Boston, Massachusetts, and then they got a job in Switzerland, and they have a beautiful dog, Izmir, about six years old, kind of a Rottweiler, Rottweiler shepherd mix, and of course they wanted to take the dog with them. And so I kind of want to have Michelle here today to explain what she went through, and you know, maybe it's not such a good idea to travel with the pet, just all oh. the hoops you have to go through. Okay. So is it harder than we think, Michelle, to, to actually move somewhere with the dog, especially out of the country? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there's a lot of research and money and time that goes into it. Um, and then also for your veterinarian as well, because um, you have to go through, you know, your your dog has to be exported as part of U.S. agriculture. So, so do you need to talk with customs? Is that, oh, is, yeah. that is that a big part of the process? That's another, that's another part of the process. <laughs> so customs and the FDA and then um, 
then of course wherever you're moving or traveling to the import process mm-hmm. and their um, agricultural restrictions. So yeah, it's um, it's certainly not easy. Um, and yeah. So about how long did this process all take from when you started to when you actually got you know approval so you could take the dog with you? Oh, those it, kind of things. I would say about six months, um, six months from beginning my research on a company to support me uh, doing this. You know to. Mm-hmm deal with um our dog is 100 pounds so she is considered cargo um so yeah yeah you have to have (laughs) a freight shipper um coordinate with the airline and um all all kinds of stuff and then of course all the proper documentation and yeah Mm. so the dog can't just come with you in the luggage no uh, unfortunately yeah i i guess i naively thought that you could just basically book a dog ticket online like you or I would right. book an airline ticket. Well, you buy the and, flight, yeah, right? You buy exactly. the seat. And they, they can sit in the seat, right? Yeah, and um, I think um, that may be true if you have a, a dog that could fit in the cabin, but you still have a lot of paperwork that you need to do in order to um, export your dog and then re-import it properly. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, and there was actually a story, uh, you know, that kind of coincided with you coming on uh, our show here on the New York Times talking about how expensive it is just to get the dog from this country to another country. Is that the cost wise, is that, is it, it's, they say it's gone up a ton recently. Is it, was it even expensive when you did it? Uh, it was definitely, I, I thought it was very expensive when I did it. And it's funny you say that my friend Jeannie actually shared, um, that article with me (laughs) before, before today. And, um, yeah, I, I would plan to spend several thousand dollars on, on shipping because, um, Obviously, you want your your pet to be safe, mm-hmm. um, but there are lots of veterinary um, back and forth things that need to happen as far as exams and medication and vaccinations and all that stuff. And then once you get to your destination, they have their own procedures for, you know, checking um, the dog or cat's health or quarantine or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So, right. yeah, we wow. um, unfortunately, yeah, spent several thousand dollars doing this. It's, so it's certainly yeah. not cheap. <laughs> I mean, it's not something that really ever came to my mind with this, how, the, how involved the process would be. Yeah. 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 So, And did you have some layovers, too? I mean, did that make things any more complicated when you went to Switzerland? Yes, actually. So um, Switzerland is not a part of the EU, which I learned during this process. Um, naively thought that because they're in the middle of the EU that they were part of the <laughs> EU, but uh, not so much. So she actually had to do two sets of um, like uh, government documents, uh, essentially. So exiting the U.S., being imported into the EU... And then being imported into Switzerland. So she had um, mm. two flights. So New York to Amsterdam and then Amsterdam to Zurich. Um, so it kind of extended the whole process here. Yes. You kind of need to, you know, it, you're not just flying to one place, you're flying to two places. Exactly. And uh, the other part is that um, not every airplane is equipped to actually carry um, like a large dog, for example. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of depends on the type of plane, the altitude it's flying at, and your animal's weight. So we actually had to coordinate specific planes, um, which are not operating every day, to transport her, which was wow. a little wild. But yeah, yeah. This, I mean, this is way more than I would have thought about. <laughs> yeah. Do you think she did okay? Do you remember? Did they offer food and water? Um, th- in your opinion, do you think she tolerated? It was harder on you than her? Or was it pretty equal the the stress for both of you? Um, for I, all three of you. <laughs> 
It was not, it was one of the hardest decisions as a pet owner that I think I've ever made. Um, not going to lie, it was very emotional dropping her off at um, the JFK pet terminal and then kind of just hoping that the airline and the cargo company would do their jobs correctly and she would arrive on the other side. Um, so, well, sure, you know, when you fly your your, your luggage, you, sometimes it feels like a coin flip, whether it gets there or not. And yeah, is, and, and your luggage could be lost. This is more important than yeah. uh, just yeah. some, you know, some clothes in a bag, right? This it, is your pet. Exactly. And there have been some stories where there have been issues with animals. Wow. And some animals have died. And so, of course, that doesn't help your exactly. confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, Dr. Lang was definitely on call um, the whole time. Um as far as she paid me extra, it's it's, it's okay. I I was well compensated. Well, I'm surprised you weren't in the freight with the yeah, dog. Right. In yeah, fact, that, I think that would have helped. Right? That was the first proposal. Yeah. No, actually, I I even tried to avoid um, sending her um, via air because I was just so nervous. She's, um, I mean, she's a Rottweiler Shepherd, so she certainly has the lung capacity and the the facial structure but this is a huge danger with like brachiophilic breeds you know like pugs and boxers and that sort of thing where um the risk of not being able to breathe at high altitudes is pretty high so yeah that i mean i was worried about that of course and then um this uh i had thought that you could sedate your dog and or cat and you actually cannot on international flights it's illegal um to import an animal like that into europe anywhere so um sedated it's a it, just take mean, the edge or, off kind of an anti-anxiety something to right. help the the pets yeah so, so but i didn't know that part of it that's interesting yeah yeah and so unfortunately the best suggestion i got was to spray lavender oil in her crate um which you know of course doesn't i mean that may help us but i don't think essential right. oils really help animals but maybe dr ling knows sometimes they do okay. times they don't and how long would it last yeah. As well, so. so, yeah, I mean, it didn't seem to help our dog, but perhaps it could help um, somebody else's pet. But, um, yeah, so they, uh, you're relying on the shipping company to feed and water and, uh, in our case, take uh, our dog out of her crate and let her, you know, relieve herself between flights. Um, oh, so it's and, that involved, too. It's, yeah. It's not just, you know, you know uh, close up the crate and ship it. They get that there's... Well, they're, they're leaving the crate. They're still watching after them. Yeah, they're su- they're supposed to. They're be. supposed to. Um, there's there's actually no at least with the company that we use, there is no way to confirm this um, because they don't they don't share pictures or updates like a like a doggy daycare oh. or boarding facility would. Oh. Um, so you just you can track the flight, and that's mm-hmm. about it. Um, so. Well, I imagine yeah. that's pretty pretty nerve wracking at times, right? Uh, For sure, yes. You don't know. How they're doing, really, even where they are. Uh, yeah. How they're how they're handling things. Uh, was that was that your experience with it? Yeah, um, pretty much. And then um, when she did arrive in Zurich, I mean, she was very excited to see us, and mm-hmm. um, but also very tired. And it was clear she was very stressed out. <laughs> yeah. So. Why well, I, I can imagine. I can imagine. But did she seem to eat and drink okay or get back in her routine, so to speak? Yeah. Um, although it took a couple days. I mean, I think. It was also, you know, a brand new country, new smells, yep. all that stuff, too. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I I think it took her a minute to get it uh, back into her old routines and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, I guess the point of the story is kind of to share this experience because um, it's, it's not so simple. And um, it's actually very um, hard on the pet and on, of course, the owner um, 
when you're doing this because you you don't have as much control as you think you would. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it. I actually can track my my luggage a little bit better than I could have tracked my wow. dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Uh, yeah, and you said uh, when you got there, it was a new place. Uh, time changes. New and all time change. Everything yep. like that. You know, moving probably cities. You know, you know, if I moving to Chicago, it would probably be hard on a pet. Was it hard on the pet to adjust to the new country, new time, new everything? Yeah, um, I think she adjusted pretty well um, just because we we literally live on the mountainside in Switzerland, which I think is every dog's like dream. Sure, um, <laughs> I'm yeah. picturing green fields exactly, and uh, yeah. you know, sheep. Edelweiss or, and yeah. cows everywhere, yeah. So um, she was in, and lots of hiking, and so um, I think that helped being able to exercise her and um, having this amazing backyard, but mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and uh, this was a topic, doc- Dr. Lang, I know you wanted to bring up. Uh, the vets in Europe, uh, how they differ from vets here. Uh, you said you've been a client to Dr. Lang here. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've had other vets, uh, experiences with other vets as well. How are they different over there now compared to what you experienced here in this country? Sure. I was intrigued with the emergencies and their time schedule. So if you could just tell the listeners your thoughts and observations. Sure, yeah. So when, uh, well... After she arrived and cleared customs, um, we immediately had to take her to the vet um, because of their quarantine laws. So despite her leaving the U.S. and being fully cleared as healthy, she has to... I guess they didn't then, know do it all over yeah, again. Yeah, do it all okay. over again. They didn't trust the, the last process. Yeah, yeah. so um, the vet, um, at least in mountain towns in Switzerland, is very different um, because animals, um, they... I think they're just treated a little bit differently. Um, I would say dogs and cats, it's kind of, um, I don't know, they're still well-loved and well-taken care of. But, for example, there is no emergency veterinarian. If you see the vet, it's between 8 and 5 p.m. Business hours. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Well, they take a two-hour lunch as well. Okay. (laughs) So shorter business hours than than normal. Uh, I guess my question would be, what if there's an emergency? Is it um, just one of those things? Yeah, where... that's what I was kind of struggling to find the words for. It That's just um, tough. It's just I the guess. way it is. Yeah, that's just uh, kind of the how how life works. And so, um, yeah, there's not a, there's not the same culture at all as far as uh, hmm. how much, you know, yeah, because we have specific emergency clinics even. Right. Or, yeah. So, so working with the vets there, uh, business hours only, two hour lunch. Uh, is <laughs> yeah. it is it harder to even to get in? Is it harder to see them for an appointment, or is it you know is that not really the problem? So uh, you don't take your uh, your animal to the vet um, regularly. You only go if there's a problem or if mm. you need um, medication like flea and tick or heartworm. Uh, so because of that, actually, it's pretty easy to get into the vet. Um, Maybe not same day, but easily that week. Um, and, yeah, it's pretty, I would say it's pretty casual, too. You just, um, it's kind of almost like a James Harriet kind of experience huh. as far as, like, countryside vet where you just yeah. kind of walk in and and um, present your animal. And then um, it's not, I mean, they'll do a full exam if you ask for one, but that's not necessarily standard procedure if you're just coming in to say, have the uh, have the dog's ear looked at or something? Yeah. So, 
Uh, now, Dr. Lang, I don't know about you, but that's a little surprising to me based on the way you talk about how you want vets here, how they want people to take care of their, their pets. I think, as Michelle said, I think they really bond with the pets, but I think medical care is is a little different. They're mm-hmm. not quite as meticulous with that kind, right. of, kind of thing. But, again, they're on top of a mountain. Maybe it's different if it's in Zurich or Geneva or something like that, but okay. uh, they're in a pretty isolated area. So you're saying we shouldn't follow the European method by not never bringing the the, the pets in for a regular checkup because uh, it seems like you always you always talk about how important those things are right. So you don't get any reminders. I mean, like rabies, that they try to keep up with the rabies vaccinations. So, um, yeah, we we do have regular baby uh, rabies vaccinations. However, rabies is actually eradicated in Switzerland, and so we have to do it because we travel with our dog around Europe. Um, so neighboring countries like France and Italy do still have rabies problems. We travel there with our dog, and so um, we are due back for our, our mm-hmm. rabies uh, after two years. Um, that's another difference, I guess, is that the the timeline between vaccinations, I think, varies a little bit. I think you do rabies mm. once a year here, right? Yeah, okay. We do have a one or three year, but... Most people do the one year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it easier now to travel with her, the dog, uh, between countries, or is there some similar problems, or or is it easier that you're all in Europe and they kind of all? Um. So we did have to go through a process to get her a puppy passport for Switzerland. So oh, she okay. she um actually holds a Swiss passport, but my my boyfriend and I do not, um, which is kind of funny. Shows you so, who's the priority, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, with that, that's kind of um her vet documents so to speak whenever we cross borders so therefore yeah i guess it's it kinda, easier it kind of clears it off yeah uh i mean i assume she didn't come with you back to the states or did she no uh mm-hmm. i just simply did not want to because you'd have to do go that, through that whole process, process again. exactly yeah right. just because she came or that you know i adopted her in the u.s um and you know she was lived here most of her life it, you for pets, it nullifies that you have to reapply, you know, mm-hmm. redo that whole process to come back, which is, yeah, definitely a pain. I mean, so. that would be it would, it would be a lot. That would yeah. be a lot. Uh, Doctor Lang, do you have anything else here? Well, just from the medical point of view, is heartworms a problem? I I didn't remember mosquitoes, but are mosquitoes an issue? Um, at that altitude that you guys are at, yeah, at our altitude, actually, no. But uh, flea and tick is a big problem, um, and then yeah, uh, we we do regular heartworm treatments as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, just for the same reasons we would here. Yep, sure. Uh, and I know this might be hard to answer, and maybe you've never even thought about this, but, you know, if someone out there is thinking about doing this, do you recommend it? Would you do it again? Would you travel with the dog to move, or would you try to find some other solution? Um, yeah, I actually, yeah, uh, I, I don't know if I said this earlier, but I, I tried really hard to not fly her. I looked at taking the QE2 from... <laughs> New York and then getting <laughs> yeah taking that to Germany with her and um no I I would not recommend this I I mean now you know we're in Europe and so it's fine but I'm very um hesitant to want to move her again that's a huge mm-hmm. decision with any decisions we're making about sure. moving um because it, it just you know as a animal gets older this is even more stressful the next time around right, right. um I would like to think that it was a good experience, but I will never know, you know, what happened <laughs> under the plane. And right. so there might be, you know, if I bring her crate out of storage, like that, you know, might mm-hmm. be a battle in itself. <laughs> um, 
you know, for her to see that again. So, no, I, I, I mean, for for short term travel, definitely not. I would, I would just recommend boarding your animals because of the amount of work that this requires, um, unless you happen to have like a private jet or something well then of course but, then it would be much easier yeah then right. yeah then you would just do the the documents and call it a day but um for long-term travel um like if you're moving abroad i i would strongly recommend doing a ton of research and really weighing if this is worth it for mm-hmm. your animal because um it yeah like i said at the beginning it's very expensive, very time-consuming, and very stressful. Sure, so. yeah. And, I mean, I'm sure most people know nothing about it. Yeah. I, I certainly did not before being told that you were coming in here. Yeah. I thought, yeah. well, what's the problem? You know, if you're flying with a dog, you buy the the dog ticket, and you put them on the plane, and you're good to go. But it's yeah. it's so much more involved than that uh, that I'm sure most people don't even realize. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's it's really interesting. Thank you so much for coming in and telling us a little bit about this. Uh, we'll be taking a break here. On Animal Talk on the Big 550. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk to another guest in the studio already with us, but she hasn't said anything yet. Jody Epstein, an Associate Certified Applied Animal Behavioralist. Uh, So we'll learn a little bit about that, a little bit about training dogs. Uh, We'll be back in a minute here. This is Animal Talk on the Big 550 KTRS. Let's get back to information about dogs, cats, even furry hamsters or gerbils. This is Animal Talk on the Big 550 KTRS, the Animal Talk of St. Louis. Welcome back to Animal Talk on the Big 550 KTRS with Dr. Dan Lang. I am Connor McCarthy here in the KTRS studios. And joining us today is Jody Epstein from Nuts About Mutts. She is an animal behaviorist and professional trainer. So what does that mean, a behaviorist? That's a really good question, actually. Um, This is an entirely unregulated industry. And so anybody can decide to be a professional dog trainer and call themselves whatever they like. But to be truly properly a behaviorist requires um, education, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my education is a master's degree in animal behavior. uh, And that's where I get the associate is the master's degree level. If I had gone as far as a PhD, I'd be what we call a full CAB, which is a certified applied animal behaviorist. And this is the highest certification that you can get without a veterinary degree. Uh, If you are a veterinarian, you can do an additional master's uh, program in behavior and internship supervision and sit for your boards to become a board certified veterinary behaviorist. Okay. So it seems it's a, maybe the more, uh, regulated aspect of trainers and uh, that field, uh, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, you know, it, practical experience is great and, and practical ability to actually do what you're talking about is great, but you have to have some foundation. You have to have some real proper education behind it mm-hmm. uh, in order to have both, both halves, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you have your book learners who can talk about it but can't do it, and you have some practical practitioners who can do stuff but they don't always know what they're doing or how it's working or you know what the pros and cons are of what they're doing so Mm -hmm. this kind of blends that and makes a more qualified experience i think sure so behaviorist and trainer are these separate jobs are they really you know you use them it's this it's one job and you kind of use both training both the both areas of expertise for all all that you do. So it's actually two separate focuses. Mm-hmm. Um, training is training your basic skills and manners and tricks and 
competition kind of things. You know, your 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 sit down, come stay, but also like shake and high five and freestyle dance stuff and sport things like agility or bite work. Um, those are all training. Behavior is dealing with behavior problems. So when I talk about this with clients, I usually explain that training is like school and behavior is like therapy. Okay. Yeah. Good way of putting it. Thank you. Good way of putting it. Uh, so nuts about mutts. You guys do both then, uh, behavior and the therapy and school. Yeah. Uh, what kind of training do you do when, uh, what kind of behavior, uh, I guess, fixing do you do? <laughs> <laughs> so I teach uh, basic skills and manners for puppies through senior adult dogs um, from very simple things to more advanced skills and manners. Uh, with a focus on helping dogs live harmoniously in their home and being Mm -hmm. part of society. Um, That's the training side. And then the behavior side, I do, gosh, a lot of things. Um, My Probably my most frequent behavior issues are resource guarding, which is sometimes referred to as possession aggression. Okay. um, As well as stranger danger, uh, so fear of, people they don't know, mm-hmm. and dog-directed reactivity, which is an over-excited response that can be fear or rage or excitement directed at dogs they don't know, um, as well as, you know, destructive behaviors. But I'll tell you, my very favorite thing are the timid, fearful dogs, the ones who are just kind of afraid of the world and want to hide in a corner mm-hmm. um, and just need you to help bolster their confidence and sure. see that the world isn't as scary as it might seem. And now, do they have any classic history or anything like that? Or maybe they're just recently adopted or uh, maybe weren't socialized very well. Is there any common history or is it all over the place? It's that, kind of all over the place. Yeah. Um, I do see, I mean, there's certainly behavior fallout for dogs who've been bounced around from home to home or shelters. Um, there's trauma. You know, just like humans, we're learning more and more that dogs can have PTSD-like experiences. But then there's also the genetic component. Um, you know, epigenetics, which is sort of passed down, like mom had a bad experience and that passes on to the babies. Um, there is in utero trauma that can happen that can impact how the brain organizes itself during development. That's a Dr. Lane kind of focus more than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that you know, the dogs who are just come out of the womb just going, whoa, this is big and scary and I don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. So what is a more difficult process? Is it training or the behavioral aspect? That depends on who you ask. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For me, I think the more challenging and probably why it's more interesting to me is the behavior work because training skills, you have to learn what motivates that dog to want to participate and you Mm -hmm. have to learn how to ask each small piece in order to build a fuller behavior, but uh, skill, but behavior modification, it's that therapy. It's trying to get to the root of why does this dog behave the way it is? What's triggering it? What need is getting met by that behavior? How can we adjust the environment in order to help them meet that need differently? So if the dog is barking their head off at seeing a dog 100 feet away, what need are they getting? Why is that dog barking? What does barking serve? And then how can we help that dog get that same need met without actually having to bark their head off or drag their owner down the street? Or Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a friend uh, who has a dog, and he's incredibly well-trained. He'll sit. He'll stay. He'll spin. He'll jump through a hoop. 
but he, uh, you know, by my friend's own admission, will have, has some behavioral issues. Uh, barking, like you said, uh, I think he gets aggressive around other people that he doesn't know. So clearly it's not linked. It's not, you know, the dog can be very well trained and have behavioral problems. Uh, is that, you know, I kind of feel like a lot of people might think they go hand in hand. You know, uh, you know, if you see an aggressive dog, you might just say, oh, they didn't do a very good job training that dog. But clearly there's some kind of split here between behavioral behavioral and training problems exactly and um one of my most favorite clients actually was last spring and it's a dog who's very well trained and does obedience competition work but out in the world is extremely reactive to other dogs and actually pulled the leash out of uh his his Mm -hmm. uh owner's hand charged across the street and got very aggressive at a smaller dog and immediately she called me she had seen my sign and called me mm-hmm. um and she's told me that the trainers where she does her obedience work just absolutely did not believe her because in the facility where they do that training the dog was fine the dog could ignore all of the other dogs but out in the world on leash where it wasn't expected and it's a different expectation in the dog's mind this dog just was so challenged by seeing other dogs. Mm-hmm. So we worked together to teach that dog that when he is on leash, he does not get to interact with other dogs, period. So this might be difficult to answer, but you know, how do you accomplish this, right? Uh, I, you can't, they can't talk to us. We can't talk to them. We can't know why they're aggressive around other dogs or other people. So how do you fix the problem, I guess? Right. Well, sometimes you can have a little bit of an understanding of what's triggering the behavior if it's fear or rage or excitement. Um, In that dog's case, it was actually uh, overexcitement wanting to go meet the dogs. It just looked a lot like an aggressive display. Um, But regardless of of what the motivation is, we set up the environment first so that we we are setting the dogs up for success. Um, And what that means is we create enough distance so that the dog can see their trigger, whatever upsets them, without getting overwhelmed by it to the point where they have to react at it. We have management in place, such as uh, leashes or tethers or a muzzle if we need it, if there's a bite risk. Um, And then we work with them using a combination of what's called systematic desensitization, which is a very structured process of building the dog's comfort with the intensity of a stimulus, starting very small and building bigger, and counter-conditioning, which is the process of making a new association for the dog that that thing out there reliably predicts something better over here. So that when they see that thing out there, they start to think instead of, oh, no, it's another dog. It's, oh, hey, that's another dog. And that dog means steak. And right. they bring their attention well, back Dr. to Dr. Lang always says that you know, one of the things we can always do is bribe uh, the dogs with it's treats. It's not bribery. <laughs> so so it, it's not bribery. I mean, I get the intention behind that, but it's not bribery. Bribery, bribery words, would be hanging a, a carrot stick in front of the dog's nose and saying, turn this way. What we're doing is teaching the dog that that thing out there means steak is available if you do something else. Okay. And so it, it's a slightly different process. Uh, Dr. Lang? Well, I was kind of intrigued. I know one of your things is trying to make it easier when they go to the veterinarian, and I didn't know if there's any general principles you could pass on to the listeners when they take their pet once or twice a year. Sure. Um, I am a huge fan of what we call happy visits, which is going to the vet when you don't have an appointment and you're not going to bother any of the staff and just make it a good place. And again, that builds in the counter-conditioning experience. 
So you drive into the parking lot, give your dog three or four pieces of cheese, and leave. And when they're comfortable with that, you park and you get out and walk around for a couple of minutes giving them cheese and leave. And then you go to the door and cheese and leave and build up till they're sitting in there. Um, there is a great book. Am I allowed to plug somebody else's book? Of course, book? sure. Because sure. sure. one of my questions is what <laughs> books would you suggest people to read? Or So there, there's a great book, and I hope I get the name right. I believe it's called Cooperative Care, uh, Seven Easy Husbandry Tips, something something along those lines. And I believe the author is Debbie Jacobs. And I will correct that later if I am wrong. Um, and it walks through some really great uh, exercises that people can do at home with their dogs to help improve uh, the cooperative interaction for nail trims or getting eardrops or eye drops or sitting for blood draws, um, you know, th- all of kind of all of those basic things, handling for for exams and things like that. Uh, and then they can bring those skills into the, the vet's office with them. Really great is to talk to the vet and the vet staff and work with them to be cooperative so that the owner who's been practicing the skills is the one who does as much of the handling as possible, who can be providing treats as necessary so that the exam can go smoothly uh, in a way that's most familiar to the dog. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, nuts about mutts. Uh, is there a location you guys work at or is it at home? They come to you. Where, where, how does this work? That's a great question. So um, I'm it. So, okay. So, <laughs> so there's do no you, you guys. Do you um, go work anywhere? Or do you go to right. people's um, homes? I do not have a facility, so I usually do at least my first consultation with a new client is at their home, mm-hmm. and then depending on what we're working on, we're either meeting at their home or in a public space somewhere like you know a local park or a big box store. Um, you know, I use Home Depot and Lowe's a lot because uh, they like dogs. Okay. And you said all ages. Is it true that you can't teach old dogs new tricks? That can is a myth. You, can you, can do, does it work even for the older dogs if they have a problem, if they want to be trained or a behavior problem? Can You can still work with them. Absolutely. The biggest challenge with training any, any creature, actually, uh, big or small, mm-hmm. young or old, of any species, is determining what motivates that individual and using that to your advantage. Okay. So in that way... Oh, it doesn't matter how old they are, right? right. Uh, is it easier, though, for the younger dogs? Is that something you know, they're more willing to work? It at? is. It is. And similarly to um, human children have a window where it's easier to learn new languages. Sure. And as you get older, it gets harder to, to really become mm-hmm. multilingual. Um, young dogs, more plastic. They're more, you know, they're developing. And so it's easier to set habits and, and expectations. When you have an, an adult dog or a more mature dog, you have to undo learned habits in order to install new behavior choices. Right. So it takes longer. Um, and if you have cognitive decline in a senior dog, it can be more challenging. And so you change your expectations and you work to what that dog can do. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, is there a set of behavioral problems that you maybe uh, you do work with versus don't work with? You know, is there something... That you say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, we just, I can't, I can't work with that. We can't do it. Um, I will refer to veterinary behaviorists Mm -hmm. when I see an issue that either feels a little bigger than I'm comfortable working solo, Mm -hmm. um, or if I think that there is a medical component. Um, A lot of my cases are at a point where medication is appropriate, and a lot of general practice veterinarians aren't terribly comfortable with behavior medication. Um, so they have 
one or two that they'll try and then they're maybe tapped out if those meds don't work. And so that's when I refer on to a veterinary behaviorist to try to get a more detailed experience, um, mm. you know, detailed plan for, for those animals. Sure. Uh, Dr. Lyon, do you have anything else to add on? Well, in the past, you know, with behavior modification or training, a lot of people think the more you punish the dog and show them I'm the boss and, and they're the dog, do you think there's still a fair amount of that when you talk to people or do you think a lot of people are aware of that you have to be more gentle, that the less punishment, the better they're going to do type of thing? That's a really interesting question. Um, within the industry, it's extremely divided, and there is an entire swath of yep. people calling themselves professional trainers who are charging money for what they do, who rely on physical or emotional punishment. Most clients, most pet parents... Uh, would rather not hurt or scare their animal if they can avoid it. I occasionally do come across a few who really do believe that a shock collar is the right way to teach a dog, and I then have to spend a lot of time educating them on why that's not really true. Mm. Sure. And so you have to make it clear what your philosophy is. Yeah. You know, if they're expecting something different or are they, they should be, but are they going to be comfortable with the way that you do it? So. I right. assume you try to explain your general ideas. Absolutely. I, I'm very direct and, and transparent on my website, um, what methods I use and what tools I will and will not use. It's in my contract. Um, and if I may take a moment and explain why Please. I'm a, a, why I don't use shock collars or prong collars, um, when they are used correctly, and by correctly I mean as designed, they function by causing physical pain or fear in the animal. And so the animal is working to avoid that experience. And that can create emotional and behavioral fallout, um, meaning behavior, unanticipated behaviors, other issues. For example, if I'm telling a dog to do something and I zap it with a shock collar because it didn't stop doing the thing I said stop doing, and at that same moment a child went riding their bicycle right past, the dog may actually associate that child or the bicycle with the shock, and now we end up creating a dog who's reactive, who gets upset mm. and might charge and lunge and bite an animal, sure. a, a child or a bicyclist. Um, and so it works, through, it works through suppression. You end up suppressing the overt behavior without ever addressing why the behavior was happening. And so I find that that's not very useful in the long term. It looks very fancy. It looks very sexy. It stops behaviors almost instantly, but it doesn't last. So going a little slower, a little more methodically, setting them up for success and teaching them, hey, can you do this instead? And when you do this instead, you're going to get paid. You're going to get access to a thing you want. You're going to feel safe. You're going to get a treat. You're going to get affection, whatever the dog wants. We get longer term results. Sure. Excellent. And uh, you are Jody Epstein. That's who we've been talking to with Nuts About Mutts. Uh, you said you are a trainer and behaviorist. You said before that, uh, you know, anyone can be a trainer. It, do you find it common that there are, you know, most trainers are both or most trainers are just dog trainers? They don't go through this other training to be a behaviorist. Most trainers are just, are just dog trainers. Um, and the amount of education, formal or self, is, is varies greatly. Um, mm -hmm. There are people who've just read a few books. There are people who have watched a few YouTube videos. There are people who have gone to trade schools. There are people who have gone, you know, uh, interned under people. So there, sure. there's, so a, you, there's a wide range. You know, yeah. you might get someone that has a ton of experience in self-research and someone who might have just done 
just right. a little bit, the bare minimum. Right. Uh, so nuts about mutts. Do you have a website? Do you have a phone number that people can call at or reach you? I do. The, the website is nutsaboutmutts.com. That's N-U-T-Z about M-U-T-Z dot com. And the intake form there is the best way to reach out to me. And a phone number? Can you be reached on the phone or not? I don't answer the phone. You don't answer the phone. <laughs> so. so nutsaboutmutts.com. You can fill out. You know, is there information on the website as well? Absolutely. So there's some information. There's a form, intake form. Are you? Is it? Is it backed up? To, you know, could people only get an appointment three months from now, or is it something where you could work it uh, relatively soon? That depends on the session time and day. I mm-hmm. see clients on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Um, I see clients between 11 a.m. and 5-ish p.m. Uh, right now, my weekends are booked through the middle of April, but I do have some weekday appointments available still. Okay. So uh, those days again? Uh, Wednesdays, Wednesdays Thursdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Wednesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. You can go to nutsaboutmutts.com. That's nuts and mutts with a Z on the end, nutsaboutmutts.com. We've been talking to Jody Epstein. Thank you so much for coming in, telling us a little bit about this uh, behavior issues we talk a bunch about it on the show so it was nice to get a little professional uh opinion about you know how to go about actually solving them uh it was very interesting to hear uh thank you so much for coming in this is animal talk on the big 550 ktrs we'll be back in a minute animal talk returns on the big 550 ktrs here's dr dan lang Welcome back to Animal Talk on the Big 550 KTRS with Dr. Dan Lang. I'm Connor McCarthy here. Uh, we've been talking to Jody Epstein from Nuts About Mutts. And before we sign out here for the final time uh, and end the show, you did want to talk about one more thing, Jody. Yeah, I just wanted to share that whether somebody chooses to work with me or any other trainer out there, I always recommend they ask a few questions of a potential trainer to gauge if it's somebody they'd like to work with or not. So the first question I would ask is, what happens when my dog gets it right? Are they getting a treat? Are they getting play? Are they getting just a good job well done? Um, What happens when they get it right? The second question is, what happens when they get it wrong? And that's really an important question. Some people, some trainers, when they get it wrong, it's a pop on a prong collar or a choke chain, or it's a zap on a shock collar or a static collar. Uh, It might be a kick or a poke or a hit or yelling at. Other trainers, when the dog gets it wrong, they reset and they say, try again, or some other indicator to say, we're going to, you didn't earn payment this time, let's try that again. And they make it a little easier so the dog can be successful. So you want to make sure that you're working with somebody who's not going to scare your dog or hurt them. And if they say they're going to use one of those tools or techniques that feels a little scary or feels painful, the third question would be, is there a way to, to make the consequence less scary or less painful? And can we do that instead? And you can use those answers, whatever they give you, as a, a means to decide if that's a trainer you really want to work with or not. So these are the questions to ask uh, any prospective trainer that, you're, that you might be talking to. Yeah. Know, whether they work with you or not, it's right. just some questions – uh, to help you know, I guess, if they're comfortable working with this trainer, would you say? Or Yeah. It, you, nobody wants to put their dog in a situation where they're purposely going to be scaring them or hurting them. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good thing because letters after your name, even major education like master's degrees, PhDs, doesn't mean that the person who's going to be training your dog is going to do it in a kind way. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's an interesting way to put it. Uh, I, I I don't know if I have no experience training dogs or even getting the dog trained. Uh, uh, I haven't had a dog when I'm an adult. Only when I was a kid. Uh, obviously, I didn't do anything for the training uh, there. So it's interesting to hear kind of the differences in the the trainers out there. Uh, that there might be, you know, first of all, there might be people that don't have much uh, education in the field at all, and uh, there might be people that do things a way that you're not comfortable doing it. Uh, so you you know are there people that ask these questions normally? Do they um, do, do they even know not do they even know to ask? I think most people who reach out to me either don't know to ask or they've looked at my website and I'm really transparent on what I do and don't do. So I've answered those questions for them. But when people tell me that maybe I'm I'm not available soon enough or I'm out of their budget or they're just not sure, I always send them on with a, you know, very best of luck. I encourage you to keep your journey going. These are questions you should be asking of any potential trainer sure. to make sure you're comfortable with who you're going to work with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I talked to Jody before, she's done it for 17 years, so there's nothing like experience to have it. Right, of course. You know, and you always she just say didn't this, come Dr. Off this, Wing, uh, yeah, with your, an old with, guy, you with know, your many for... years of experience. We won't say how many years of experience, but you always bring up how much you have as well. Well, Jody, thank you so much for coming in. Nuts about Mutts, nutsaboutmutts.com. Uh, if you have any further questions, uh, you can find more info and a way to reach you there. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Animal Talk on the Big 550 KTRS. We'll be back again next week at 2 o'clock. Join us then. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the preceding paid program are those of the host, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this station, its management, or owners.